Well, hello and welcome to the Catherine Plano podcast, where we share tips, tricks, tools, and strategies that you can implement in your life for massive improvements. Every week, we have change instigators, compelling creators, and interesting humans who are breaking the cycle of convention and redefining success one mission at a time. So join us here every week for new lessons on how to lead a life that matters, how to escalate your life after failure, and how to inject more meaning, connection, and resilience into your life. Now let's jump into your weekly dose of practical goodness. What if embracing vulnerability could liberate us from our limitations? In this riveting conversation with renowned relationship expert, Dr. Robert Glover, we traverse the terrain of personal growth, confronting shame, and fostering deep connections. Dr. Glover illuminates our path by emphasizing the power of conscious decision-making, offering strategies to dismantle self-defeating patterns, and challenging conventional taboos. He advocates for nurturing a relationship posse for support and underscores the power of safe, non-judgmental spaces to release shame and grow authentically. Culminating with the launch of Integration Nation, a global initiative to equip men with the tools to thrive. This conversation distills transformative insights into personal growth, the healing power of relationships, and the liberating potential of embracing our true selves. It's now time to tune into this one very inspirational human being. Enjoy. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are at on this planet at this very moment in time. And I'm very excited about our guest today. We've got the amazing Dr. Robert Glover. Welcome to the show. Thank you for the invitation. It's good to be here. I so can't wait to unpack the topic that we were just talking about. But before we do, we always love to ask our guests. So tell us, Robert, what's your story? What inspired you to do what you do today? Oh, my goodness. Well, you got to remember, I'm 67 years old. So that story goes back a little while. Um, let, let me try to keep this as interesting as possible. Um, what I do today, that's kind of hard to even say what it is I do today. I, I by Training, I am a marriage and family therapist. Uh, I have a PhD in marriage and family therapy. Uh, I was also uh, a minister in an earlier lifetime. I have two degrees in religion. Uh, nowadays, I my primary focus is working with men. I, I've written four books for men. I uh, do workshops. Uh, I do classes. I do one-on-one -on -one consultation. I'm building a, a worldwide community, uh, subscription community for men that's going to launch in like about Two weeks. Uh, so I'm I'm really all about men, empowering men and um and helping men be their, their best selves so that they uh, make the world a better place and so they can show up in powerful ways in relationship, living their passion, living their mission. But you know, when people ask me what I do, the most honest answer is that I'm an online marketer. You know, I sell shit on the internet. And, and you know, it, it's so much more than that, of course. But 
where I got to where I kind of, kind of maybe the, the part of the story would be most interesting is that I was in my mid thirties. We're talking 30 plus years ago and uh, a couple of years into my second marriage. And, um, and I, I was really frustrated and it was coming out in passive aggressive behavior and other things. And my wife, who I love dearly said, you know, you got problems. You got to go to therapy. You got to go blah, blah, blah. And I, and I thought, and so I'll leave you if you don't go get help. And I go, well, you're the one who's unhappy all the time and, you know, never in a good mood and never wants to have sex anymore. And it's never good enough. And, but okay, I'll go to therapy and go to find out in, in my mind at that moment, why me being a nice guy didn't make her happy. You know, I thought, okay, I'm, I, I treat her well. I treat her better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. I try everything under the sun to make her happy. And none of that worked. And in fact, it, it, it was having the opposite effect. So I, I, I luckily fell into some good places, a 12-step group, uh, a, a couple of good therapists along the way, then a men's group. And what I started realizing is that this paradigm I had of being a nice guy, this roadmap that that I, I developed really early in childhood uh, from a number of influences, trying to be different from my father. My mother told me as a boy, she was raising me and my brother to be different from our father. Um, she later apologized for that, both for saying that and doing that. Uh, bless her, bless her heart. And um, listening to a lot of women complain about all the jerks out there. Well, I don't want to be like that jerk. Growing up during the angry feminism of the 60s and 70s, you know, every man's a rapist and erection's a sign of aggression. I, I don't want to be that guy. And so here I was, you know, just trying to be good, make people happy, hiding anything that might get a negative reaction from them, including my needs and my sexuality. You know, don't let them see that. They, they might not respond well. Again, I grew up fundamental Christian church. So, you know, all this, you know, you never know when you're going to piss God off and be thrown into hell for all eternity. You know, I, I grew up with that. Um, a critical, uh, moody father that I never knew what mood he'd be in when I walked in the house. So, I mean, we all, you know, we all have our stuff. That was my stuff that created this roadmap that if I just be different from my father, different from other men, don't be angry, don't have sexual wants or needs, uh, try to make everybody happy, avoid conflict, don't rock the boat, then I'll be liked and loved and get my needs met and life will be smooth and I'll be happy. <laughs> and it didn't work. And um, what I started, what I found out is I started, you know, working on me and discovering toxic shame and learning about boundaries and telling the truth and making my needs a priority and surrounding myself with resources to help me get my needs met and live my best. As I started learning this stuff in the, the process, I, I was a therapist in private practice, like I said, a marriage and family therapist at that time. And guys were coming to see me, sometimes individually, often with a wife or girlfriend, and they were saying the same thing I'd been saying. I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. I treat her well. You know, I do everything for her. I treat her better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. I buy her the new car she wants. It's never good enough. When's it going to be my turn? She's mad all the time. Oh, and she never wants to have sex anymore. I mean, I, I thought I'm not the only one. So I started my first no more Mr. Nice Guy men's group. I think we met every other Wednesday. I had about eight guys in there. And I just started writing just, you know, now we might just call them blogs or, you know, but back then I was just writing stuff. I, I didn't realize I was a writer at that time, but I've always written to express myself. And just I, every every other week when we got together, I would just give them, you know, what I'd written that week, what I was discovering about me, 
about nice guy syndrome, where I think it came from, how it developed, how to overcome it, how to do things differently. And I just, you know, just kept writing this stuff. And these men and often their wives and girlfriends said, Robert, there's a lot of nice guys out there. You need to write a book. You need to go on Oprah. This could be a bestseller. And, and so over about six or seven years, I kept writing. Uh, took me about three years to get it published after completing the right. So the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, has been out for 20 plus, years, 20 years now. Never got on Oprah, but the book is doing really well. So how's that? Does that bring us up to speed? Yeah, where, it where, where does we right bring now? us up to speed. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and and before we got on the show, um, just so our audience um, know what we were talking about, we were talking about, absolutely, I wanted to unpack the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. And what I was saying is there was a lot of coloration, um, uh, connection, I should say, with what I was experiencing, even though I'm not a guy, uh, yeah. but there was the things that I was working on. So I have a friend who's reading the book and as we're, we're sharing the stuff that we're both going through our own personal development, I'm like, wow, this is not just for guys. This is for women too. It's, I think it's, it's not just for, well, that, that's, that was my, my take on it anyway. So well, what are your thoughts? I, I, I hear the same thing from women. I mean, the books, like I said, been out 20 plus years. So I, I've, I've gotten a lot of emails, you know, mostly from men. Um, but I, I get a lot from women. Kind of a funny story is that when the book came out, uh, the publisher at that time, Barnes and Noble, I think was hoping for some kind of pushback, some kind of blowback. You know, maybe, maybe you know, angry women might get upset. Oh, some guy's written a book teaching men how to be not nice. You know, there's already a not enough, <laughs> enough not nice men out there. And the funny thing was, it never happened. Mainly because the, the women that have picked it up and read it usually have one of two experiences, most commonly. One is they either see their partner, an ex, a brother, a father in there, and they go, oh my goodness, that explains it. And you wouldn't believe how many men come to me telling me their ex gave them the book, said, you need to read this. Uh, their women, the female therapist gave them the book. The other uh, response I get from women, you know, like I say, is women going, I can relate to this. I, I I have issues around boundaries. I'm a nice girl. I'm seeking approval. I'm avoiding conflict. In just the last few days, I've gotten two emails from women, one who identifies as a lesbian, but said, I need this because I, I, I'm much more in my masculine self than my feminine self. And just two days ago, I got an email from a trans man to woman who's trying to make that adjustment but still kind of relates more to the old masculine part of herself and is, you know, dealing with the confusion that, you know, comes with all of that. So I get all kinds of emails from women. I, I occasionally get a, an angry email. They're really rare. Maybe I have five in 20 years. And the angry email usually goes something like this. You know, you're a terrible human being. You, you know, you, you should be ashamed of yourself. My husband slash boyfriend, whatever, read your book. They left me, you know, but, and, and the emails usually like, I don't know if you can see my hands, usually like that long. Right. And, 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 and they're just going on and on and on and on and on about how terrible I am and, you know, how terrible their partner is for leaving them and all that. And I'm thinking about their partner, you know, run Forrest, run, you know, get, get go. I'm glad you picked the book up. I'm glad, glad you found it. But, you know, so maybe five of those in 20 years. So yes, Women tend to find the book both illuminating in terms of men they've known and in terms of their own nice girl patterns. And I, I tell nice guys all the time, I think nice girls existed long before nice guys did. 
many of the nice guys I work with learned to be nice guys from their, their nice girl mothers. I did. My, my, my mom you know, would have been a nice girl trying to please everybody, living by what I call covert contracts, giving to get, trying to get validated, not wanting to upset anybody. And I, I learned well from a, a very good teacher, my nice girl mother. And that's where it all begins, right? From our childhood, depending on our environment. Oh, I thought you were going to say it all begins with mom. No, no, (laughs) no. I wouldn't say it just begins with mom. I think it depends on who is your main caregiver, one. And I think it also depends on what you experience in your as a child, you know, and this is part of our programming, right? And a lot of the times the way that we behave, we're not even aware of why we do what we do until we do the deep work, which is what you've done, which I think is fantastic. I would love for our audience, because I don't know what that, uh, for those that don't know what's a uh, nice guy, let's unpack what is a nice guy. Yeah. Well, let's start with what you just said a moment ago about our early life experiences that require some deep work. I'm going to make you know a generalization about all people, not just nice guys, nice girls. But when we come into this world as infants, you know, we, we come from this um, blissful, symbiotic connection floating inside of our mothers, come into, you know, a harsh, unpredictable world with, you know, human, less than perfect parents, with, you know, less than perfect world. And a, every, chi- every child, every one of us as infants were, of course, immature, underdeveloped, completely needy and dependent on others for survival not able to use words, um, you know, we're vulnerable. And I remember in Child Development 101 in grad school, the first thing they told us is that a child's greatest fear is abandonment because for a child, abandonment means death. A child will die if there's not a caregiver to take care of them. And human children have the longest period of growing into maturity of, I think, any animal. Um, So we're dependent for a long time. That means we're dependent on people to take care of us. Now, in in tribal times, you know, 100,000 years ago and longer, uh, you know, we we had a tribe to take care of us. uh, Hillary Clinton wrote a book called It Takes a Tribe, talking about raising children. You know, when I I just had a conversation with with a guy I know today for several years, a text conversation, which are not ideal, talking about some father issues. And he said, my father's horrendous. You know, I, I, I totally disconnected everything about myself from him. And I said, well, I found that when men do that, they often have difficulty connecting with other men and connecting with their own masculinity. They're trying to be different from father. And I said, I found that most men are probably more like their fathers than different. And anything that we kind of push away just goes underground into the shadows of our our psyche and our unconscious. And it's still there. It still manifests in one way or another, but we're just unconscious to it. Well, he pushed back, resisted on that, you know, just a few. I said, okay. He said, but if you knew the story of my father, and I said, well, okay, I, I, I hear you're committed to holding on to that. I won't push on it. But those those dynamics, uh, uh, it, it kind of expressed, you know, we were vulnerable and we weren't raised by perfect parents. So if we were cold and not bundled up, if we were hungry and not fed, if we had a dirty diaper and weren't changed, if we were crying and not burped, that felt like an abandonment. And for a child, you, I, every human listening to this, that felt like a potential death situation. So here's what children do on a very immature pre-verbal level, on an emotional level, is we all internalize the belief 
that there's something about me that causes that. And that's typically what we call toxic shame. There's something fun, but none of this has words, right? Because we don't have words yet at that age. Our brain doesn't function in words. It functions in emotion. And so we inaccurately internalize a belief about ourselves and the world, and typically that we're the cause of that. So then what children try to do at this pre-verbal, pre-thinking, consciously thinking level is children try to do whatever they can to soothe and calm the uncomfortable feelings they're having. I sucked my thumb till I was in kindergarten. Like maybe I was, you know, trying to soothe and calm some uncomfortable feelings, probably. Um, children may scream. They may get quiet. They may sleep a lot. They may eat a lot. They may do, they'll do something to try to ease the discomfort that they feel. And if people are listening to this going, I still do that today. Yeah, we do. <laughs> the second thing that every baby tries to do on a pre-verbal, immature, emotional-based way is to try to prevent those uncomfortable situations from happening again in the future. So that can take a lot of different forms. Sometimes it's a pushback. Sometimes it's a, uh, you know, I, I'm needless and wantless. But again, it's without thought. This is all emotions that get, that get stored up in our, the survival part of our brain called the amygdala. It's a part that manages fight, flight, freeze, respiration, heart rate, survival. So at our very core of our survival brain are these emotional beliefs about us, the world, what I need to do to, to medicate the feeling, uncomfortable feelings I feel now and how to prevent them in the future. That is the roadmap, the paradigm every human carries into adulthood with them. And we have no frigging clue it even exists until it starts showing up repeatedly in ways that don't serve us, that are dysfunctional, that keep hurting us, that keep hurting other people. And then maybe we take a look at it. So maybe it shows up in, in addictions. Maybe it shows up in codependent relationships. Maybe it shows up in abusive relationships. Maybe it shows up in being completely socially isolated. Maybe it grows up in eating too much, starving ourselves, trying to kill ourselves. It could show up in so many different ways and I believe it's the fortunate person that actually bumps into that. You know, if you've ever been to a 12-step group or seen like one on television, they'll often, somebody will say, I'm a grateful, recovering, fill in the blank, alcoholic. And you always go, well, how could you be grateful for that? Wouldn't it have been better if you weren't an alcoholic, if you didn't, you know, mess up so many marriages, you know, waste so much of your money, you know, ruin your career, reputation? Wouldn't that have, no. They're a grateful recovering alcoholic because that that the way that their childhood paradigm was playing out was a big stick upside their head that said, wake up, pay attention, notice. And then maybe if we fall into the right places, like I'm grateful I did, we get to start paying attention and getting curious and going, hmm, where'd that come from? Hmm, what's that about? Why does that keep showing up? Why do I keep repeating the same things? Why do I get stuck? And then hopefully if we find good resources, we get some answers. I don't know that we'll ever get them all. And maybe we find some uh, a better paradigm and better tools to put in our life toolbox to help us get what we want. So was, was, was that a short enough answer for how, how nice guys become what they are and live that yeah, as an adult? Yeah. And, you know, the, the interesting thing, it, it does, like we were talking about um, abandonment and the... <clears throat> For example, for me, um, my family came, uh, migrated from France to Australia, uh, but 
even so, like when I was in France and even Australia, we were always looked after people, like people always looked after me and my sister and my brother. And so there was that kind of abandonment, but abandonment and how we react to abandonment. So for me, I'm more of a, a avoidant star in relationships. So I push away. But then there's that that nice guy component where they become needy and they they're trying to be so nice yeah. that um they because they want to please uh they don't want to you know they don't want to rock the boat all of those things it's still abandonment but how how oh, yeah. it shows up for us and how we react to it is very very different it can be polar opposites and it can show up differently in different contexts you know I've been in some relationships where I I was the one that wanted to fuse. You know, let's oh oh let's 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 be like this. You know, and it's usually with a person that's going like that, right? And in other relationships, I'm the one kind of going, ah, don't get too close. You know, and and so it's interesting how it can show up. But I think whether we're the one that want wanting to fuse and get codependent and lose ourselves, or the one that no, don't smother me, don't control me. You know, whether it's that, I think it does pretty much go back to the same thing. It's usually a combination of shame. I'm not good enough. I'll be found out and or anxiety i might do it wrong i might get abandoned i might get yelled at i might get hurt i might i might i might i might and that's how most of us do relationships and typically how we do relationships is how we do most of our life that's kind of that's kind of fundamental yeah and you just touched on something which made me made me think of the imposter syndrome you know i may be found out it's it's like you feel like a fraud you are hiding you know, behind something. Because I feel like just from my understanding with uh, being a nice guy, what you were saying is that when we repress in things that we want, it comes up and shows up in a different area of our life, right? So, for example, yeah. whether it's um, you might uh, push away, um, you know, maybe not have enough sex in your relationship, let's say, but then they might turn to an addiction to porn or something like that. So the things that you repress and push away, will come up in some other way. So this is what I understand yeah. as well. From an, there, There's going to be a component of standing in your truth, saying it as it is without holding anything uh, back, right? I mean, I'd love to yeah. understand more about what are some of the things that nice guys can do to not have those repeating patterns, right, whether yeah. it's a breakup in marriage or no, not enough sex or not being happy, whatever that may be. I'd love to hear more about that. Okay. So here, here's the, the general advice I give. Don't try to do this alone. I tell men, women, doesn't matter. Nice guy, nice girls. You did not develop this internalized nice guy, nice girl paradigm on your own. It developed in a social context, you know, usually, you know, in infancy with your parents, with family, people that were caretakers that were around you. And what I found, because most nice guys do have that fear of being found out. Oh, if I let anybody see what I you know, believe about me, they'll, 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 they'll hurt me. They'll leave me. They'll abuse me. They'll shame me. Okay. So most nice guys, including me, he's a recovery nice guy, tend to, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be seen. You know, let me do the work. Let me read a book. Let me, you know, watch a video. Let me, but to, to really go reveal and expose myself to real people. No, I'd, I'd rather not do that. Now, when I started working with nice guys, when I started that first No More Mr. Nice Guy group, as I was exploring me, I, I, I naturally assumed, well, since these nice guys were saying many of the same things I said and doing many of the same things I did, they must all be like me, maybe had a similar father dynamic, mother dynamic. And I quickly found out 
not not every nice guy, nice girl is the same. And one thing I found that that kind of took me a little bit to really see the picture of is that there are two types of nice guys. And and I think your listeners know by now when I say nice guy, you know, listen, we'll apply it to nice girls as well. But I'm, you know, I've been talking this stuff to men for so long. And that that's where, you know, my books and my work goes. But but again, I've worked with so many women around the same issues. But so two types of nice guys. One is the one that's like me. I the, I'm so good, nice guy. That's the nice guy that's a I'm a good guy. I do everything right. Why wouldn't everybody like me and love me and, you know, think I'm great? Now, I remember early in my second marriage, um, the, 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 the wife I was married to that said, you need to go get help. I remember she would, she loved self-help. She loved self-help books. She loved going to therapy. And I remember she was reading, uh, like we're, we're in bed at night. She's reading like John Bradshaw, Healing the Shame That Blinds You. And, you know, good, good, go to, go to bed kind of reading. And um, it, it created a lot of romance in the bed. So uh, I remember one time she starts reading. She, oh, this is you. This is you. Let me read this to you. This is exactly you. And I go, okay, what is it? And she starts reading about toxic shame and about this overwhelming sense of unlovableness, defectiveness, not good enough, you know, fear of being found out. And I'm listening to it going, I, I can't even relate to that. In fact, that sounds a lot like you. you know, you're the one that hates yourself. You're the one that's never happy. You're the one that thinks, you know, you're never good enough. But, you know, and, and you know, at that time, like I said, I had a PhD in marriage and family therapy. I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I get concepts pretty well. I couldn't even grasp what toxic shame was. Now, here's here's why. Because on an emotional level, I buried my own toxic shame. I'm not good enough. I caused people around me to hurt me not love me, leave me, blah, blah, blah. Whatever I inaccurately internalized about me in the world as an infant was locked away in such a, a small, airtight, sealed box so deep in my unconsciousness and psyche, I didn't even know it was there. But the fact that I'm spending my life trying to be seen as good is proof, is a reaction to some part of me at a very early age believed I wasn't. Why would somebody try to be good, try to be seen as good, unless they had a core belief somewhere that said, I'm not, and I better hide that. So the I'm so good, nice guy, I'm so good, nice girl hides their toxic shame. It's tough to get to because it is so, so deeply buried. Now, I found out there's a second type of nice guy, and I call that the I'm so bad, nice guy. This is the person, uh, an adult who often was the oppositionally defiant child. They, they were the opposite of the nice child in the family. Maybe the nice child even was trying to be the opposite of that, that troublemaking child. This is the child that pushed back on everything, cut off their nose to spite their face. Whatever their parents wanted, they did the opposite because if they did what their parents wanted, that meant losing them. At least that's how the oppositionally defiant person usually is. If I do it your way, I lose me. I don't exist. So this is the child that if it's a female, you know, they're having sex with every inappropriate 20-something-year-old loser when they're 15, you know, get knocked up at 17. If it's the guy, it's the guy who's smart but drops out of school, you know, spending so much time smoking dope and drinking and getting busted for doing stupid stuff. And, they, and, then, and so their shame is right up on the surface. Because it's just in their face. They're getting in trouble. They're getting shamed. They're getting scolded. They're getting punished. They're getting told how bad they are. They'll never amount to anything. So their shame's right up there at the surface. But at some point in life, 
they have, for lack of a better term, you know, a come to Jesus meeting, that big stick upside the head. They get sober. They go in the military and get straightened out. They, they, you know, they, they, they get in trouble and they get into therapy. Uh, they get a divorce. Uh, something happens that they go, they, I, they go, I can't keep living this way. I got to change my life. But while they're trying to be good and do everything right and get approval, right beneath the surface is still this, oh, if they find, if they get to know me, they'll find out how bad I am, right? Because they've lived that their entire life. So their toxic shame's right at the surface. The I'm so bad, nice guys, right, is, is buried down, down below. So what do you do with this? Thankfully, when I began, you know, my recovery process, I did land in some good places. My, my ex used to say, you're a sex addict. You need to go to, you know, sex addiction group. So I, I went to a 12-step group for sex addicts. <laughs> First meeting, second meeting, I found out I'm not a sex addict. I'm not having enough sex to be a sex addict. You know, I'd acted inappropriately, but I was not compulsively, you know, using sex to, to medicate. But it was a bunch of men. Most of them had some pretty, you know, you know, dark stuff going on in their lives. And for the first time in my life, I started revealing me. I thought, oh, man, this is kind of cool. I can just go talk about me and nobody, nobody's like offended. Nobody's like shocked. You know, the, 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 the most extreme response I get is, thank you for sharing, Robert. You know, and I'm thinking, they're all thinking, why are you even here? You know, you don't belong here. But it was beautiful. You know, the, this group met like at 5 a.m. And I looked forward to that group every week. So I got to go just reveal me. And then I got into therapy and I started revealing me in therapy. And I got into a men's group and everything that I didn't want to reveal about me, I did. I started sharing whatever I really didn't. And I'm still in a men's program today. And, and in that program, there's often an exercise of we have to do a group of people say, here's what I don't want you to know about me. And then we got to just kind of like, you know, shotgun, tell 10 things I don't want you to know about me. And I think, well, I've been revealing myself for so long. There's nothing I don't want people to know. Until I do that exercise, I go, I don't really want to say that. Okay, I will. So I think this is the most empowering thing that any human can do is go find a safe person, a safe group, someplace safe to be us, to tell the things we've never wanted to tell, the things we thought, thought the things we felt, the things we've done, the things we have impulses to do, the things that scare us, the, our darkness, our shadow, to go find a safe place and just reveal that and that does a couple of things. It helps let the toxic shame come out, right? We don't have to keep it guarded in there anymore. And as we get that relief of letting that out, we also get more accurate messages about who we really are. You know, when, when you know, I go to therapy or 12-step group or men's group and share something about me, you know, the response was always, Robert, that must have been painful. Or Robert, Thank you for sharing that. Or Robert, that took courage to let us see that in you. Or Robert, you know, that is kind of like, what? Nobody's like, you know, yelling at me, going off on me, criticizing me. No, they were accepting me as an imperfect human being, which let me begin to accept me as an imperfect human being. So to answer your question, <laughs> number one thing I say is go find a safe person, safe people, and consciously start revealing the things about you that you don't want anybody to know about. Wow. that that One, that takes courage. Two, 
uh, a level of accountability. So from my understanding, what you were just sharing from a toxic shame point of view, as we're repressing it, it goes back to that conversation we're talking about, how it's showing up. It's polar opposites, right? So some people are pushing it down even further and being overly nice. Yeah. Um, and I find that when you do that, when you don't allow, when you're going against what you are meant to be doing, it's almost like, you know, what what I've seen anyway in some really nice guys around me, it's almost like they'd be trying to be too nice. But because they're pushing this other stuff down, they trip over themselves and they keep making mistakes unconsciously. Yeah. And now when I speak to them, I don't know why I did that. I have no idea. But yeah. then you have the other ones that, you know, and, and, and it could be that one nice guy that can be at either end, depending on uh, that sometimes they go aggressive, uh, almost yeah. like completely off the scale or off the chart, uh, which is out of character, right? So I think that- oh, yeah, I, I, be- I call that a victim puke. When the guy that is so nice all the time and all of a sudden just blows up or does acts out in this really, you know- hurtful kind of way. And, and again, if if somebody picks up No More Mr. Nice Guy and starts reading, the very first chapter, they'll see a list of how nice guys aren't always so nice. Because um, it does, you know, if you're not honest, if you don't have boundaries, if you're giving to get, if, if you, you know, if you're seeking everybody's approval and validation, if you avoid conflict, I mean, all these things make you fundamentally dishonest. And Fundamentally, you're going to feel used, taken advantage of, hurt, like you give more than you get. And all of that stuff builds up. And it often builds up in frustration and resentment, even rage. And in men who think, I'm a nice guy. Um, yeah, it, you know, I, I mentioned this guy. I've known him for years that I had this conversation with earlier today via text message. And um, he's not my client. He's more of a colleague. But I've known him for years. And, and you know, and I know he looks up to me. And, you know, when, when I said, you know, if, if we if we if we have this core belief, I'm fundamentally different from my father. Like I said, I think I've been working with men. We have to realize we're probably more like our fathers than different. And and he said, no, nope, I don't accept that. I don't see any way that I'm like my father. He was such a horrible human being. And and I, like I said, well, it, it's 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 there. You've just pushed it down. And and again, I didn't want to get into a, a text exchange with somebody that had resistance. And so I didn't. I said, I, I won't push. I'll, you know, and but I, I even thought I went to take a shower just before I got on the call here after I'm in the shower, you know, I do my best thinking in the shower and I go, I bet every woman in this man's life up to now, and he's probably 45 to 50. I bet every woman in his life could answer the question, how is he more like his father than different? Because the women in relationship with him have seen it manifest in ways that he's oblivious to and would like to pretend don't exist. So again, you know what they say, what we resist persists. You know, what what, what we, we deny is going to manifest. Uh, Jung said, um, having is evidence of wanting. He also said, uh, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will repeat itself and we'll call it fate. So, you know, whatever this stuff is, if, you know, if we deny that it's down there, it's going to keep driving the bus of our life. And we won't even, we won't even know why. We'll, th- we'll think, well, it's their fault. Well, it's their fault. It's their fault. Mm, it's their fault. Yeah. But no, I'm, I'm the one co-creating th- this dynamic. And then that takes a lot of accountability, right? Because I always say, I, I always, because uh, I teach this as well, the behavior is not the person. The behavior is what they're thinking and feeling. 
And when you address the behavior, it never works out anyway, because they always deny or blame. They don't want to see it. But by being more inquisitive and asking them, and I'd, I'd like to see how this would link into um, uh, nice guy, um, by asking uh, thought-provoking questions about what are you thinking about this and what are you feeling, you're getting an insight into what's happening without addressing the behavior. Because I think this is where people could avoid having arguments to stop addressing the behavior because it's an unconscious act. We're not consciously aware of what we are doing. So even for me, when my behavior gets addressed, right, initially I go, no, I don't. But then I'm no, like, hang on. If I was to stand in your shoes right now and look at what I just did, I can see what you're saying, you know. Or even I, I remember quite often I used to have um, my partner say to me, you're so much like your mum. I'm like, no, Uh-oh. I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. But when I actually sat with it, I'm like, yeah, I am so much like my mother. So we do, like you said, a lot of the times we resist, but what we resist does persist, right? So what are some of the, uh, I guess, the techniques for a nice guy, nice girl to use to help them? Like I love the fact that you've got someone to support. What are some of the other things that they can do to help them become, um, you know, not a, a different nice guy. Not not nice. Well, fact, not, not the, the nice. Ter- the term I yeah, the not not nice guy. The term I use in no more Mr. Nice Guy, I say integrated male. And just just quick backstory on that. When I wrote, you know, I, I wrote if I if I published everything I wrote for no more Mr. Nice Guy, it would be that thick. You know, the book's actually this thick. Luckily, I sent it off to a professional editor when I thought I was about done, and he wrote back and he said, okay. Uh, you know, and, and I, I really was pissed at him for a long time because he didn't say really anything nice about the book. He said, you're about halfway there. You're too repetitive. You don't need to give so many illustrations. You know, you need to tell people what to do, not what, you know, not to do. And you need to tell them what they're going to be if they're not a nice guy. I thought, oh, my goodness. I thought I was almost there. I like my illustrations. And I'm a therapist. I can't tell people what to do. They said, well, it's a self-help book. Yes, you have to. And I go, okay. And um, and what what is this person if they're not a nice guy? So that's where the term integrated male came from. Now, again, I'm talking to men. It could apply to women. That could be integrated, conscious, authentic. You know, there's so many terms, you know, self-evolving, self-aware, you know, but but what we're talking about is somebody that pays attention. So just like the alcoholic learns that, oh, when I have a craving to go drink, I need to get curious and ask myself, what's that about? When um, a person like me, for example, I'm amazingly attracted to uh, unhappy women, especially women unhappy in relationship or unhappy with past relationships. I'm amazingly attracted to that. I don't know why. I have no idea. Oh, could it be what my... First love object was an unhappily married woman, my mother. You know, I'll be the good one. I'll listen. I'll make everything better. So I have to get curious when I notice myself being attracted to somebody that, you know, well, you know, they've got this problem in their life and that problem. And I go, why am I so attracted? I I have to get curious, right? So even just funny little story. My, my, My wife and I take our dog for a walk every morning. And so uh, we've got this three-year-old pit bull, Nala, and she's just, you know, everything you've ever heard about pit bulls, she is not that. You know, my mother, when I got her, said, oh, that's such a dangerous dog to get for the kids. She is the most loving creature I've ever experienced. So we're walking the dog. And there, there's a, a gymnasium we walk past right near our house. 
And, um, and it was Sunday morning. No cars parked out in front, and it's quiet, but there's still some music going. I said, well, strangers, music playing. You know, the gym's closed on Sunday. She goes, no, it's not. Gym's open on Sunday. And I go, look, there's no cars there. No, the gym's open on Sunday. And I said, no, actually, the gym's not open. So we, we, we walked for the next five minutes to the park, kind of having this, we weren't, it's just a low key trying. To, I, I said, well, I know you believe you're right about that. And she goes, I know you believe you're right. About, and so, you know, we're kind of talking about just, we're going for the walk with the dog, trying to convince the other that we're right. And then letting go. Okay. You can be, you can be distorted and wrong. I don't care. So we're, we get to the park and we're still having this discussion. I just said, you know what, there's, there's, there's an axiom in marriage therapy that the thing that the couple's fighting about is never really the thing that the couple is fighting about. So we're walking and I said, you know what? We both think we're right. We both think we can prove to the other how right we are. You know, we're arguing about something that really doesn't matter. And I said, you know, both of us really just want to have a good time in the park, walking the dog and enjoying each other's company. And she looked at me and said, yeah, me too. And, you know, it took one of us to just recognize we were having a dumb argument a really dumb argument of no consequence. Does it really matter if the gym's open on Sunday morning or not? And, and, and once we just realized, oh, it, it serves some purpose, but we had to get curious. Why are we doing this? So any way that a person can get curious now is it helps to, if you have some degree of awareness of, of what your stuff is, do you tend to Go create codependent relationships. Do you tend to have no boundaries? Do you tend to give more than you get? Do you tend to not express your feelings? Do you tend to model them up? Do you do you tend to seek? I mean, if you know what some of your patterns are, then when you notice them, you know, hopefully in the early stages of manifestation, you can begin to say, hmm, what's going on right now? I can say, hmm, why are my wife and I? you know, having an argument that's going on for five minutes, it wasn't heated. It was almost more playful. Like, I know I'm right. You know, you, you think you're right, but you're not. I am. You know, why? What the, what the hell was that serving in that moment? It wasn't about the gym being open. So if you can get curious, you can get down, down below. Now, I, I don't know if you've, if you've stumbled onto this book, but I, I did a couple of years ago, listened to it, read it uh, called Existential Kink. And, and it is really, you know, if, Get that, get this, the writer, Carolyn, I can't think of her last name, Elliot, Carolyn Elliot, get her on your show. She, she's very Jungian. And that's where I got that quote. Having is evidence of wanting. So I, I think, okay, why do I keep getting into relationships with women who accuse me of doing things I haven't done? And then we get into these big arguments. I didn't do that. You know, I don't have, I'm not talking to some woman on the phone. I, you know, I, I'm not looking at that woman's ass. Why in every relationship I've had, do I do I have this pattern? Now I know it began with my father being accused of things I didn't do. And I've been married three times. All three of my wives in different ways cooked up things in their head. It, girlfriends I've had in between wives. You're doing this. You're doing no, I'm not. No, I'm not. And I go, why do I keep having that in my life if I dislike it so much? Well, reading existential kink, she says the unconscious wants to experience everything. And whatever it is we're inviting into our life. Is, is in a sense, something that an energy that our unconscious wants to dance with, but it also could be serving some unconscious purpose out of the shadow. And I thought, what purpose could this be serving? And it dawned on me. 
if people accuse me of things I haven't done, which goes down to my core toxic shame, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. And if they're not right, if they're inaccurate, if they're distorted, I can vindicate myself. I can argue. I didn't do that. I haven't done that. I don't do that. I'm good. You're wrong. And, you know, there's a certain it in that, a certain look. I'm I'm not bad. I'm good. I'm good. I can. Vind-. I thought, you know, that's kind of a perverse thing to want to invite into my life. And like, you know, Carolyn Elliott says, we have to be able to laugh at that, smile at that and go, hmm. That's interesting that I keep inviting that into my life. And I do. So any awareness at all that we get about our repetitive patterns allow us to go, hmm, that's interesting. Why is that showing up right now? And so being because I was going to ask you that the self-awareness is the first step, right? So being aware of those patterns, then what do you do with it? Because when you're when you're working with the unconscious mind, it's really uh, I always think that a lot of the times we project our shit onto our partners. Always. Um, always. Always. 100%. Always. Yeah. So, and that, that's a hard pill to swallow. Uh, because that's that's once again it's 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 looking at why am I doing that? But yet, why do we keep doing it? And this is the the thing, like, so I'm aware of the things that I do, but what drives me doing that all the time? And I and and, and the 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 friends that I've spoken to you about that, especially one that's reading the book, it's like I'm aware I do this. I'm aware that I attract these kind of people. I am aware yeah. I'm accused of these situations. But I don't know why I do what I do, and I don't know what to do about it. Yeah. So, so that's a good question. So where do we go? All right. All right. I've got awareness now. And awareness is essential, but not, um, not complete, right? Awareness can be very helpful, but it doesn't always, you know, resolve or solve the problems. And I'm going to go back to don't try to do this alone. I've got... So many good people in my life who know me well. I was, I was talking to somebody on a call the other day. It was, it was a, a group call for a program that I run. And um, talking about a relationship dynamic that every time he gets in a relationship, and I, I've known this guy about three or four years. You know, I guess either a few months in, maybe maybe as much as a year or so in, he starts having this inner debate. Should I go? Should I go? Oh, there's other cute women out there. Oh, you know, maybe this person isn't um, the right one or, you know, and they just get into that internal debate. And, and you know, a, a lot of people do that, actually. They, they can they can spend years in a relationship debating whether or not they should stay or go. And and so I told him, I said, listen. Here's what you do, if you know that's your pattern, if you're aware that you get in and think it's worth getting into, but then once you get in. You start doing this pattern of checking out other people or debating, should I stay or go? I said, number one, you might make a decision that if you are committed to being in a committed relationship, you don't let yourself do those two things. You notice them when they happen and get curious. Why am I doing this? Be Why am I noticing other people right now that if I was single, I probably wouldn't even go talk to them. But because I'm in a relationship, I can think, I wonder what it'd be like to be with them, right? You know, so why am I doing that? Or why am I like focusing on, you know, uh, that discolored place on her neck? Why am I focusing on that and thinking I should leave? You know, why all of a sudden is her laugh bothering me so much? And I'm thinking I should leave, you know, get curious. Now, I found when I start picking my partner apart is because usually... I haven't set a boundary, haven't asked for what I wanted, or we've spent too much time together. Just you know, I need I need space. Not 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 to get away, just to go 
have some quiet time, alone time, work time, exercise time, whatever. So I've gotten curious. If I start picking apart my partner, I go, what's going on? Okay. So you identify those things that you do. If you have some awareness and then you either, here's one thing, assignment I've always, I've given people for a long time. If you recognize that pattern, I tell people conscious for a period of time, pick 24 hours, seven days, something, and consciously either do more of that behavior or completely make it off limits, right? Don't entertain the idea. I could be dating that woman over there and she might be amazing if I wasn't. You, you don't let yourself do it. Or maybe you consciously do more of it. You check out every single consciously, right? Not unconscious. Oh, maybe her, maybe him, you know, whatever, you know, whichever way we swing, maybe them, you know, so do more of it or less of it. But, and then what I told this person, get a relationship posse, get three or four people in your life, a few buddies, maybe a woman has known you for a long time, probably not your mother, probably not a sister and have this relationship posse. And before you get all in with a person, they have to spend a little bit of time around the person and give you feedback. Oh, I think maybe you're not seeing this or they, oh, you know, they, they seem like a pretty cool person. Give it a try. And if you start debating, should I stay or should I go? You go back to your relationship party and say, you guys know me well. Is this a pattern on my part? Or do you see the same things I'm getting concerned about? And the guy said, oh, I've got a relationship policy. He said, you know, the last girlfriend I had, I said, she was uh, Latina, right? He goes, yeah, Mexican. My wife's Mexican. I live in Mexico. Said, yeah, yeah. I said, you got to watch out for those Mexicans. You know, he's just playful. And he said, oh, they all said she was crazy. And I go, what I remember from the stories you told me in the past, I think she was. And I said, but you kept going back to it. That's what you have to get a, get curious about, get a handle on. Why do you keep going back to that? So having good people in our life who know us well, that can give us feedback, and we have to be willing to at least listen or entertain the idea that they give us, that, we, that maybe we should pay attention, whether it's relationships, where we're stuck, where we're repeating the same behavior. The people around us can often see us better than we see ourselves. So we need a coach, a therapist, a group, a group of friends that, you know, we can take this stuff to and they'll be honest with us and give us straight feedback. That's essential. I, um, I'm smiling because I think that feedback is important 100%. So that goes into that level of accountability and prepare to listen to the feedback. Um, but what came to mind was the um, the pattern. So you identify the pattern um, and then it's a matter of breaking that pattern. So you become consciously aware of the pattern. Now do what do I do with this pattern? And so it's to either do the opposite of what you normally do or go on the full, on the opposite spectrum and do it to it's um, go over the top with it. To, to a absurd extreme. Yeah. What's the purpose of doing that though? So I'm just trying to understand like, so so let's say, because I know, and I talk about this all the time, you know. When, Every when, client when, asks me that same question when I give that assignment. Why yeah. would I do that? Yeah. Because I, I, I'm thinking like, even like, well, I mean, I, I talk about it in my classes. It's the thing is that when you start in a relationship, uh, you always think the sun is shining out of the crown chakra. They can do no wrong. And then over yeah. time, and that's why I say consciously you're in a relationship because you're consciously about aware of the the way I look, the way I dress, the way I smell, the way I speak, the way I eat. But then over time we become very comfortable and it becomes sure. an unconscious relationship. And this is where the, th the things start shifting in a relationship. 
So what do we do? Like, because I know that then you start seeing the things like, why are they doing this with their hair or why are they doing that with their nail or what's, you know, things that they've always done that you just have not noticed, right? But then the the, the, the thought is, am I with the right person? And then the doubt comes in, right? So how do we, so we become aware of these patterns, but I'm, I'm just curious about, well, if I was to go the extreme, what's the purpose? Okay, that's a good question, and everybody asks that. That's why I give the assignment. All right, most of the stuff that comes up, uh, and we're kind of honing in on a relationship just as a way of talking about these ideas. So most of the stuff that comes up in a relationship is projection of some sort, right? And and it's defense mechanisms, and it's you know um, fear of being left or fear of being smothered. I mean, it, it you know all that stuff gets woven in. All the stuff we internalized at three weeks old, three months old, three, it all comes up. I, I I I've been telling people for years that that lifelong or long term monogamous pair bonded relationships with a member of the opposite sex are unnatural, not part of our human history, and not not in our human DNA. Right? This is not how our ancestors did it for a million and a half years. We've been trying to do it for about ten thousand years. Um, I, I think men invented the patriarchy to try to manage how can we make this thing happen that's so unnatural. Okay. But I, I'm a big fan of monogamous long-term relationships. And what I've been telling people, no matter how you choose to do a relationship, whether it's open, monogamy, whatever you're doing, that if you do it consciously, it's a powerful personal growth machine. You'll learn a lot. Now, most of us, as we've been talking about, do most of this stuff unconsciously. And again, as Jung said, until we make the unconscious conscious, it'll rule our life and we'll call it fate. It'll rule our relationships and we'll call it the other person's fault, right? So one of the beauties of consciously doing more of something that you're doing unconsciously is that you be, you first of all ask the question, why the hell would I do that? Which, in a sense, answers the question. Yes, why would you? Why would you do it at all? If you can't, if doing more of it makes no sense, why do any of it? See, so that's part of it. But then if you actually try to, to go do more, I, I remember, um, uh, I can't name the author's name, uh, Roth wrote Feeding the Hungry Heart. And, and, and her basic premise is, is that food is a substitute for love for a lot of people with eating disorders. And she talked about her eating disorders. And she talked about how the thing that broke it was she got a big bowl. And, and her 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 drug was, I think, like peanut M&Ms. And she filled this bowl with giant bags. Yeah, you're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. With giant bags of peanut m and said, eat as many as you want till you're done eating, right? To eat them. And that's that's the same thing I just said. Do more of it, but do it consciously, not unconsciously sneaking a few, hiding the bags, pretending you're not going to. No, just eat them. Just eat them. And then after a while you go, why am I doing this? I do the same thing with men around porn is that, you know, men will come. Oh, yeah, I, I, I can't quit looking at porn. You know, I feel so much shame about it. You know, my partner keeps finding out or I'm afraid that if I do get into a relationship, you know, blah, blah, you know, and, uh, and you know, and every guy, they, they say that every addiction is not a, a stopping problem. It's a starting problem. Everybody has stopped doing their drug at some point. The problem is we always start again, whether it's the, the M&Ms or the porn or the codependent relationships, or we always start again. 
So what I do with guys around porn is I say, okay, you know, it used to be when they were in my office, I'd say, sit down at my computer and show me what you look at. Let's look at porn together. And they're going, oh, and you know, okay. So they're going to show porn to their therapist. And I say, oh, log into what you'd normally look at. You know, tell me what, you know, what you would do while you're looking at that. You know, or what, what turns you on about? We'll talk about it like we're talking about cars, you know, recipes. And, and, and we're releasing shame from it to show porn to your therapist. You know, takes a lot of courage. But we're doing more of something, but doing it consciously. And by consciously showing porn to your therapist, I, I used to say, I've got the best job in the world. I get paid to look at porn. And, and, and the guys would come back two weeks later, a month later and say, Robert, Dr. Glover, I haven't even had the impulse to look at it. So there's something about doing more of it consciously that kind of gets you back to the core of what it's about. So it's a powerful tool. I mean, I'm not saying this solves everything, but it's a pretty powerful tool. So like, you know, my wife and I would joke. We have this pattern. She accuses me of looking at some woman's butt. I don't know what woman she thinks I was looking at. I start defending myself. Sometimes I yell and say hurtful things. And, and you know, we've got this pattern. And I actually, you know, joined a men's program five years ago because I needed help on, on that pattern. It was an old pattern. Right. I knew I needed to. It's here. So I need to make the unconscious conscious. So now sometimes my wife, you know, we, we can be humorous and playful about it now. And she'll say, well, I go, what's on your mind? You know, this is all in Spanish because she doesn't speak English. ¿Qué tienes? Nada. No, siempre es nada. ¿Qué tienes? No, what do you have? Nothing. No, there's always nothing. And she goes, and she'll say, uh, oh, lo mismo, the same thing. I go, well, you have about 12 same things that, you know, kind of. And she goes, uh, no quiero pelear. I don't want to fight. And I go, um, I go, well, okay, but how about this? How about we not fight? How about you not accuse me of anything? How about I just start yelling at you and calling you names? How about we just skip it all and, I, and we just go straight to the, the yelling part? And she goes, no, it's not the same if you're not really mad at me. So that's us kind of playfully, you know, doing more of the thing that doesn't work very well. We can laugh and get playful uh, about a dynamic that used to be unconscious and and, you know, came close to destroying our relationship. So anything we can do to get outside feedback on this thing and get more conscious, either, you know, get conscious by saying, okay, uh, one, a lot of times with people I work with, all right, let's do a challenge. Let's go 28 days without doing this thing. 28 days without looking at porn, 28 days without drinking, 28 days without, you know, spending any money on online clothes, 28, whatever it is. Go 28 days of not doing it. And every time you have the impulse to do it, ask yourself, hmm, what's going on? Why right now is a, my emotional thermostat kicking in saying, go, go buy some clothes online or, you know, go, go have a drink or go look at some porn. So there's one way. As I said, the other side of that is to consciously do more of it. You know, go eat a bunch of more M&Ms. Go look at more porn with your therapist. You know, go buy a lot of clothes with your best friend looking over your shoulder. You know, do something that makes you more conscious and then get curious about that. I wonder whether it, it sort of links in with control, right? Because I think that when you hide things, this is because I, I'm just thinking about nice guy. I'm thinking about myself as well. When you can't control other people, you can't control anybody, by the way. No. But if when you feel like you have lost control or have no control, that and this is, goes back to some of the conversations I had just the other week with somebody else about anorexic, right? It's to do with 
same thing. It's it's that control. The only thing I can control is what I put in my mouth and what I don't put in my mouth. But when you make it yeah. conscious and say it's not forbidden, because there's something about when it's forbidden, oh, yeah. I'm going to do it. There's that rebellious part of our brain where it goes, you know what, because I, I remember my dad sat me down once when I was, oh, I think I was about 13, 14, and, um, and this is where, you know, you start drinking and it's taboo, you do it behind your parents' back. And he said, let's sit down and have a scotch <laughs> together. And Uh-oh. I remember the fact that he did make it taboo and that it was okay, and I'm French, so we had a little bit of wine with water as kids anyway, but not making it taboo, we never got into alcohol as kids, if that yeah. makes sense, right? So I just wonder if there's a component of making it taboo makes people because when you go you are not allowed to do this or this is bad the brain goes i'll show you i can do it but you do it in a secret manner so here's here's a a a little helpful tidbit about that most of the dysfunctional behavior i see in people's lives uh the repetitive behavior that that seems to keep biting us on the ass is often driven by shame that ta- is taboo. So that means there's shame attached. This is bad, right? I tell most of the men I work with that I think most porn addiction is not really a sex addiction. It's a shame addiction. They can go into what's what I call the shame compartment and go, you know, look at this thing. And shame is amazingly activating, energizing, whether you're eating chocolate covered m M&M, you know, peanut, peanut covered M&Ms, whatever, looking at porn buying stuff you don't need. If if you can go into that shame compartment, it really energizes it. That's why, you know, again, doing this stuff in the open, revealing yourself does take a, a lot of the shame about it. So any way you can release the shame. Yeah, like, for example, same thing. You know, I live in a culture here in Mexico where, where people do drink quite a bit. And we've always let our kids drink uh, with us, right? And, and we control, the, you know, a poor, you know, yeah, I'll always ask, you know, my wife and I are having a margarita or a beer. You know, I'll ask my, my son, he's 18 now, and my stepdaughter, 15, my stepson. I go, do, do you want a drink? They almost always say no. 90% of the time they say no because they really don't like it. But if it was taboo, they'd go drink it, even if they didn't like it, because it's a way of pushing back the control, but also going in the shame place. When in my second marriage, when my stepson hit 13, 14, and the internet was coming on strong, you could download anything, you could, you know, buy anything. Um, his mother told me, oh, you know, I found these videos in his drawer. And the mother response, they, they were porn videos. The mother response is to go off on him and tell him it's terrible. And I can't believe you're doing that. And it's misogynistic. And it's, you know, that, you know, and I said, don't do that. Because if you do that, it's good. it'll go more underground, take on more energy, have more shame. And so I said, about 13, I, I, I told my again, second wife, let me handle all the discipline of, of my stepson, her son. And she, she handed it over to me because then as a father, I could talk to him. I said, listen, of course you want to look at this stuff. I said, uh, your mother has agreed she will not look in your underwear drawer to see what you've got stashed in there. She is not going to look. I said, I will check it out every now and then. And if I see something I think is really age inappropriate for you, I will take it. I'll tell you I took it and I'll tell you why, you know, but I I, I won't shame you. You know, you, you look, look at what you want to look at. And and it lost its power. It lost its power. 
Um, remember, we also told them, you know, if you're going to have sex, come home and have it in your bed. Don't be in a car. Don't go. Because, again, this shame thing around having sex. I said, but be safe. We always bought condoms at Costco in the big bulk. We'd put them in a bowl. I said, hand them out to your friends. You can be the condom guy. All of your friends, give them all. We'll keep refilling the bowl. We won't count them. You know, you just give, give them to your friend. And remember one time, um, he had a girlfriend and, and he invited her back to the house. And he had a, a downstairs bedroom and its own door. And the, the girl said, you know, uh, you know, basically said, can, can we like sneak in so your parents won't know? And And my son said, my parents don't care. And the girl's like, really? We don't get to sneak around and, and do this? Kind of like, what's the fun of that if we can't sneak around and have sex at 15-year-olds? So taking the shame out of things really does free you up in so many ways. So the way to deal with shame, from my understanding, is just to make it, um, bring it to the surface, allow it to come, like make sure. it conscious and talk about it, share with others. So there's, you remove the shame from it. Is that right? Yeah. Bring it out to safe people. And and then you'll get the feedback. Well, actually, you're pretty normal. You know, that that's pretty common. Um, you're not bad. Um, if it's, you know, showing up in ways that are harmful or hurtful, you might want to make some conscious decisions about that, but you're not a bad person because you have this impulsive behavior and getting that feedback and releasing the shame just seems to take so much of the power out. of That's amazing. That is amazing. Now I am conscious of your time too, Robert. So, um, um, oh, I think we're going to have to get you back on the show and talk to talk a little bit more about it. And also, um, uh, wanted to unpack a lot more. I had lots of questions to ask you and also your other books as well, which we will have in the show notes. But the way that we love to wrap up the show is to leave three shiny golden nuggets for our audience. So they could be like three tips, um, could even be about uh, what you were speaking about, link that in with its boundaries, whatever that may be. So over to you. Okay. Gold gold nugget number one, don't try to do this alone, right? We're, 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 we're people that are we, we need people. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't live your life in isolation. Get a relationship posse. How about that one? Get a relationship posse and um, find safe people to release your shame to. Yeah, that's amazing. So those are my three golden nuggets. Yeah, it's amazing. And you're you're starting a, a another group, I think. My friend was saying something about you starting another global group or something. Yeah, that's a good one. Global group. I, I love, uh, 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 what do we call it? Literate, no, anyway, I can't think of the word of when you got CCC. BG, yeah, no, I saw global it. group integration nation is what it's called. I am, um, and it's aimed at men. Uh, you know, I talk about integrated men in the book, No More Mr. Nice Guys. So it's going to be a global group worldwide. It's going to have calls pretty much every day of the week, a uh, subscription community. We'll have journeys, we'll have coaching, we'll have uh, everything men need in terms of tribe to get support, to get accountability, to release shame, to learn the skills they need to live uh, their best lives and be their best self. So uh, I, I've been working on this thing for a year and fingers are crossed. We're, we're going to launch this in about two or three weeks and um, we'll, we'll, we'll be spreading the word about it. But it, it really is a place just where men can go and have tribe and masculine initiation. And uh, our, our tagline is good men doing better. Like I say, no more Mr. Nice Guy. We don't have to become a different person, a better person, but we can do better every day. 
I even bought some little wristbands and it just says do better. And every time, you know, if I, if I rush through something, drop something, you know, my wife says, well, you didn't put the lid down or, you know what? I, I go, okay, I can do better. No shame, just I can do better. And um, so that's going to be the, the theme. So we're going we're gonna to help men do better in their lives, their relationships, their work, their career. And uh, I, I, I just, my vision is just, just making the world a better place, starting, you know, one man at a time. So that, that's launching. So integrationnation.net, people can already go get, get details on it. Yeah, we'll have that in the show notes uh, for our audience for sure. Uh, look, you're amazing, honestly, Robert, just sharing your wealth of wisdom. And like I said, I could keep you on the show for two hours, uh, but I think we will get you back on well, the show. We'll, we'll come back and do it. Do it. And I just got to tell you, yes. the, the, Buddhist, the Buddha statue you have right behind you, so you're yes. right behind that. I have the exact same one in my window right over there. Oh, I've been wow. looking at it. It is it's kind of a stone Yes. Buddha, right? Yeah. I have the exact same one. I've got You're Buddhas. in Australia, I'm in Mexico, we got the <laughs> same stone Buddha. Yeah, I've got Buddhas everywhere. My my son's friends used to come over all the time and say, Is your mom a Buddhist? Um, but I've been collecting Buddhas my whole life. I can't remember the, the I always buy Buddhas. It's one of those things I'm I'm drawn to. Um there but yes, go. I love them. They so, there you go. Um before we go, Robert, where do you hang out the most for our audience? Drglover.com. Just drglover.com. Yep. You'll, you'll find me there. And then, like I say, then go check out integrationnation.net. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, your energy, you. sharing your story. It's been wonderful. And uh, I can't wait to have you back if you we'll come, come back. back. I will. Thank <laughs> All right. Thank, thank you, Catherine. Thank you so very much for listening to today's episode. If you loved what you heard and this topic really resonated with you and you think it will help others, please click on share show with your friends to help make a difference. And if you want to be part of our mission to help empower the conscious people of this world to learn and grow, then the best way to get involved is to click on follow show or leave a review on iTunes so that we can give you a shout out on the show. If you have been a long time listener of the show, you know we are big on delivering content that is valuable for you. Content that will address your pain points. So if you have any questions or ideas for a podcast show, please reach out and we will create the content to meet your needs. Yes, you heard right. If you have topics, themes or or special guests that you want to hear from, please send us a note to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will create a show especially for you. Wherever you are in the world, sending you love, blessings and peace. Namaste. Namaste.